Well, we're in a study through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, um, surprisingly called Romans. And uh, this morning we're in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And our title is The Good That God Is Working. Will you stand again with me then and let's read our scripture today. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I want you to know that you're going to need to think this morning, uh, so I hope you're ready. Uh, there was a part of me that wanted to skip this passage entirely uh, because it's a difficult passage. I, I will confess to you right up front that I have studied this for most of my life and I still haven't plumbed its depths. Only three verses and yet powerful Romans 8.28 is one of the best-known, most loved, and most quoted verses of the entire Bible. Believers throughout history have found in it encouragement for their minds, rest for their souls. It, It occupies a place in a special category of encouraging verses that include passages like Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. When we come to passages like that, we, we find great encouragement in them, but like Jeremiah 29.11, Romans 8.28 also happens to be one of the least understood and most inaccurately applied verses in the entire Bible for reasons that we will see this morning. It is then followed by two verses that have given occasion to a great deal of argumentation and division among believers. So we need to attempt to understand these three verses because properly understood, they they contain not only great encouragement, but also clarification to a great deal of confused teaching and thinking among believers today. I remember a, a late night debate that I had with one of my college roommates with where we we almost came to blows over this over this passage which when you think of it is pretty shameful. (laughs) But there it was. (laughs) Notice with me, first of all, that the verse 28 begins with those two words, we know. We know. Look back at verse 22, which also begins with, we know. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And here just a few verse, verses later, and in a sense, side by side, are, is another assertion of spiritual knowledge. This one about God's providential care. And there are a good many things that we do not know. But verses 22 and 28 begin with, we know. And in verse 28, Paul points us to five foundational facts that we can and do 
No. So five foundational facts followed by five amazing affirmations. Foundational fact number one, we know that God is at work in our lives. We know that God is at work in our lives. Again, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You notice that in the if you're an English student, an English major, maybe, you, you look and say, well, the subject of that sentence is all things. But here's something that we also know. All things do not work together for good all by themselves. Right? They don't automatically work themselves into a pattern for good or of good. That may be the philosophy of evolutionists and utopians. But the scriptures and human experience and common sense tell us that apart from the sovereign oversight of a benevolent God, the universe and all that is in it would inevitably and necessarily devolve and self-destruct. And the same is true in our personal lives. And yet the Bible reveals an eternal, sovereign God who is orchestrating all of history toward a predetermined end, which is, Paul told the Ephesians, to bring everything in heaven and earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this same God, the Bible tells us, is at work in us, and for us, and is attentive to the most intimate details of our personal lives. It is he who causes all things to work together for good. He is the causative factor, the difference maker. The New International Version probably renders this verse most accurately, along with maybe the New American Standard. But here's the, here's the way the Romans 8.28 is rendered in the NIV. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're wondering if one of those is not true to the scriptures, there's to the original Greek manuscript for those of you who think those thoughts, uh, they both do. Both of those are, are acceptable translations. But in the ins and outs, in the ups and downs of your personal life, know this, that God is ceaselessly, energetically, purposefully active on your behalf. As we just sang, he is for me, not against me. Foundational fact number two, we know that God is at work for the good of his people. The word Paul chose, the word that is translated good in English is the Greek word agathos. It it describes the good that originates with a loving and holy God. That which is intrinsically good in and of itself, good in its very essence, whether or not we perceive it or understand it to be good. It is good as God, who alone is perfectly good, defines it. Because he's good, his actions on our behalf are all expressions of his goodness and calculated 
to advance the good of his people. What that good is, is not the good as we in our fallen nature would define it or always desire it. What that good is, Paul will address in the next verses. Foundational fact number three, we know that God works for our good in all things. I want to pause here and clarify an an essential truth. Because here's one of the points of confusion. Saying that God works for our good in all things is not the same as saying that all things are good. There's a popular saying these days that says it's all good. But unless we have blinders on, when we look around us, we know that it's not all good. We don't have to look very far. There's a whole lot of bad in this world, in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, in our families, in our personal lives. Several years ago, I heard a leader in this church say to someone else, I, was, I overheard a conversation, and this leader said to someone else, whatever happens, you can be confident that it was God's will. Think about that now. Let that just sink in. Whatever happens, you can be confident that it was God's will. By the way, that leader has since moved away, so stop looking around. <laughs> I was floored, honestly, in that moment because I expected a, a deeper level of thought and insight from that particular leader. So listen, to say that God is working for our good in all things is not to say that everything that happens is good, or that it should somehow be contrived to have been God's will. We live in a world that has rebelled against God, rebelled against his word, rebelled against his will, resisted his ways. As a result, we live in a world where, as we saw last week, suffering and groaning are commonplace. You see, when a loved son falls off the back of a truck and ends up in a coma, we can't say it was God's will. When an armed person goes into a school or a shopping mall or a place of business with evil intent and randomly takes the lives of a number of people, it cannot be said to have been God's will. When the children of one of the victims is left without mother or father, we must never say, to them, well, it was God's will. When a man traffics young girls to provide sexual favors to wealthy men, it cannot be called God's will. When a distracted or intoxicated driver loses control of his vehicle and kills or injures others, it cannot be simply passed off as the will of God. When an immigrant detention center is firebombed, we can't cavalierly say, well, God must have willed it. Jesus said that it is Satan, not God, who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Well, what then? What then? This. Our Heavenly Father is so great, 
so mighty, so powerful, so in control, that he is able to cause all things, the good, the bad, the purely evil, large things, small things, seemingly insignificant things, righteous things and unrighteous things, our successes and our abject failures, even the works of the enemy, to work together for our good. We don't always understand what God is doing. We often do not welcome what God is allowing. Neither are we told that God is working for our comfort, our convenience, our financial prosperity, or so that our children will have straight teeth. But we know that in all things he is working for our good. Remember that it was many years after Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt that God miraculously exalted him to power in Egypt and eventually used him to rescue those same brothers and his father from starvation. And do you remember what he said to them on that occasion? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. It is God and God alone who by his power and love, his grace and his mercy, can bring beauty out of the ashes of our lives, turn our mourning into dancing. It is God and God alone who can restore the years the locusts have eaten. It is God and God alone who will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. A past generation of believers used to express that truth as they sang these words. By and by when the morning comes, all the saints are gathered home. We'll tell the story how we've overcome, for we'll understand it better by and by. Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But he guides us with his eye, and we'll follow till we die, for we'll understand it better by and by. C.S. Lewis said that our first three words in heaven will be, well, of course. Foundational fact number four, we know that God is at work for those who love him. We know that God is at work for those who love him. It's necessary for us to consider this limitation, so let's not miss it. Paul is not asserting a general, superficial, optimistic principle that in the end, everything's just going to work out to everyone's benefit. Paul wants his readers to understand that the good that God is working is exclusively for the benefit of a group of people who share a common characteristic, which is that they love him. All of Paul's references thus far to love in this letter to the believers in Rome have been about God's love for us, but God's people are also marked by love for him. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
The lifestyle of obedience to God is the mark of those who love him. See, the hard implication here, the, the dark lining to the, to the silver cloud, is that God is not causing all things to work together for good to those who do not love him. God's people will understand and enter into the experience of God's ultimate good by and by. So hold on, church. But it will only be because God sovereignly overrules, overarches, orchestrates the events of our personal lives and all of history so that we will enter into that experience. Is that the experience of the rest of humanity? No. Paul told us in chapter 1, do you remember? Almost like a previous life, isn't it? So long ago. Paul told us in chapter 1 that those who are in rebellion against God, who refuse to acknowledge Him or worship Him as God, He has given over. Do you remember that phrase? It's repeated, I think, three times in Romans 1. He gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. It's one of the worst consequences imaginable. Because it means that God just took his hands off and said, okay. Like Burger King, he said, have it your way. (laughs) And the clear implication is that The good things are therefore bad for those who do not love God. Why? Because those good things that they experience, those good things that come into their lives, allow them to live in the illusion that they are self-made and self-sufficient, in full control of their lives, without any need for Him. Foundational fact number five. We know that those who love God are those who are called according to His purpose. He's not describing two groups of people, but one with those two phrases. Hear what Paul is saying here. It is God who initiates the relationship. Our love for God is simply the evidence that he has first called us into relationship with himself. Our love for God is always and only in response. John said, we love him because he first loved us. To be called according to God's purpose is to have been graciously included in his eternal purpose to save us and to redeem us. Paul wrote to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, listen, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Five foundational facts. And now in verses 29 to 30, Paul unveils what he meant in verse 28 by God's purpose. 
by which he has called us and is working everything together for our good with five amazing affirmations, if you will. He, he traces God's saving work in our lives through five stages. So let me read verses 29 to 30 again to refresh them in your mind. For those, he uses big words here, <laughs> for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those verbs relate to the same group of people. So let's dive in. God foreknew his own. I mentioned earlier that these two verses have been the source of a great deal of disagreement among believers and Bible scholars, literally for centuries. Uh, Disagreements about this word here, foreknew, have created whole denominations and abominations. (laughs) So it begins with God's divine foreknowledge. And the common meaning of foreknow, and I like to keep things as simple as possible, But the common meaning of that word is simply to know something beforehand, right? You foreknow it before it happens. And some have concluded that God foresees who it is who will believe and that this this foreknowledge is the basis of the second stage, which is predestination, which we will come to in just a moment. But we need to pause here. Here's what Paul is not saying. I, I know at least what he's not saying. Okay? He is not saying that, that God got in the car with Marty McFly in the DeLorean, fired up the flux capacitor, and traveled into the future and made a list of everyone who would believe in him eventually and on that basis then predestined them to be saved. It's a faulty interpretation for two reasons. Three, actually. God didn't get into a DeLorean, first of all. But Next, it's God's foreknowledge. If God's foreknowledge is merely his prior awareness, that is, that God is intellectually aware of who will choose to respond to his offer of salvation, we should be reminded that in that sense, God foreknows everyone and everything. The Bible reveals an eternal, sovereign creator God who exists outside of time and space, but who knows the end from the beginning. He's fully aware of the most intimate and intricate facts about each of us, even the numbers of hairs on our heads, or in some cases, the lack thereof. But Paul is not talking about everyone and everything here. He's talking about a specific group of people. Secondly, if God bases our predestination to salvation solely on a decision that you and I make, that, that he knows we will make, then salvation becomes a matter of our works and our merit, what we do 
rather than his mercy and his grace extended to us through Christ, what, what he does. So God didn't look into the future and say, oh, Victoria Owen's going to accept me. She's going to respond to my son. So I will predestine her to salvation. That, that is not what God did. He didn't respond to our decision. So we've got to think a bit more deeply about this. The word no in the Hebrew language expresses something more than intellectual awareness. It expresses a personal relationship that's characterized by care and affection and attentiveness so that when Genesis 4 tells us that Adam knew Eve, we are to understand that there was intimacy between them of a very deep and personal nature. So that when God knows someone or a group of someone's, it means that he is lovingly watching over them, intimately involved in their lives. Listen to what God says, for example, to the nation of Israel in Hosea 13.5. It was I who knew you, same word, in the wilderness, in the land of drought. So that when God raised up Moses to, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he, he watched over them in that wilderness experience. He cared for them. He nourished them. He protected them. He disciplined them. It was I who knew you intimately in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Check out what he says to them in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known, speaking to Israel, the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Is he suggesting that he, he doesn't know that there are other families of the earth? Of course not. He created every ethnicity, every people group on the face of the earth. What he is saying is that out of all the nations of the earth, it is Israel whom he sovereignly chose, whom he, on whom he set his affections, whom he faithfully loved, with whom he entered into covenant relationship. Finally, notice with me what he says to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Love is always a decision. In another place he said, it's not because you are righteous, because you are stubborn, stiff-necked people. Probably should be my life verse. See, the word know in this and many other instances means, in fact, to love. To foreknow, then, is to forelove. And that captures the essence of it. Before the foundations of the world, God foreknew, foreloved, and chose those who would be his very own. Right? Do I understand that? No. No. But there it is. 
In his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul expressed it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. (laughs) That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Third amazing affirmation. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This verb predestined means literally to decide upon beforehand. This is like getting a drink out of a fire hydrant, isn't it? Right? You get more on you than in you, but uh, hang in there. The verb predestined means literally to decide upon beforehand. What's Paul saying? He's saying that a decision is involved in becoming a Christian. But that it is God's decision before it can ever be ours. Do we then make a decision for Christ of our own free will? Yes. (laughs) But only because he first made a decision for us. Doesn't that make you want to scream? You know the word antinomy? It's two facts that are mutually contradictory and yet they're fully true. And they stand side by side. And this tension in the Bible between the, between the sovereign will of God and the free will of man is never lessened. And in fact, a lot, of the, a lot of the heresies in the early church, and still today, a lot of heretical teaching comes out of an attempt to relax the tension. The minute we try to relax it, we're off into falsehood. We're off into heresy. Our minds balk at the thought, but the mystery of this tension between the sovereign will of God and the free will of man, that he first chose us, that we freely of our own will choose him is just always there. A commentator named C.J. Vaughn summed up the issue with these words. He said, everyone who is eventually saved can only ascribe his salvation from the first step to the last to God's favor and his act. Human merit must be excluded, and this can only be by tracing the work back far beyond the obedience which evidences or even the faith which appropriates salvation. Even to an act of spontaneous favor on the part of that God who foresees and foreordains from eternity all his works. Jesus expressed the prior initiative of God when he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Which tells us that before we were aware, of God, he was aware of us and he was already drawing us to himself. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul described God as he who began a good work in you. Our salvation always begins not with our decision, but with his. 
not only did he begin the work, but he's the one who also takes responsibility for bringing it to completion. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, our minds reject this, but in our experience, in our daily lives, we, we fully embrace it because we thank God for our salvation, do we not? Not with any sense that somehow it was our doing. And we pray that God will work in someone's life to draw them to himself. We, we functionally embrace this. We, intellectually, when we're faced with it, though, we struggle. When a person makes a decision to transfer their trust to Jesus, they discover that even the faith that leads to salvation is a gift from God, not something we can self-generate. Paul wrote that in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, that is the faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Notice the trajectory or the goal of God's predestination. It is that we would be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And here is the good of verse 28. God is always working all things together for our good. Here's the good, that, we're be, that we are conformed to the likeness of his Son. That in our character and in our conduct, we should be conformed to his image. And that transformational process begins in the here and now, but it will be brought to its completion, as we saw last week and the week before, in that moment, in that transformational moment, when we see Jesus face to face. In verse 30, he expresses the third stage. Those God predestined, he also called. Those he predestined, he also called. One, one of the struggles that people have with what Paul is asserting here is usually, usually expressed in a question that sounds something like this. Well, if God foreknew and predestined those whom he was going to save, and it's all his work from first to last, then why should we even bother to share our faith? Why should we even bother to proclaim the gospel? Why should we even bother to evangelize? And the only answer I can even muster is that it is only through the proclamation of the gospel that God calls people to himself. And what he has in mind here is not merely the words we speak as we share the gospel with others, but the call of God himself through us. It is the Spirit of God who raises the spiritually dead and gives them life. So Paul wrote in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So God has, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, seems foolish, but, but it's in his wisdom, chose us, allowed us to become partners with him in the proclamation of the gospel, partners with him in calling those that he intends to call. And those whom God calls in verse 30 are the same people that are called according to his purpose in verse 28. And we know that the call of God accomplishes its work because Paul continues and says that those he called, he also justified. 
Notice with me, he doesn't say those he called. Out of those he called, he justified some. That's not what he says. He says those he called, he also justified, which tells us that the call of God is an effective call. Jesus said to his disciples, no one comes to the Father except through me. So God extends his message, or extends his invitation, extends his call through the message of the gospel. And he enables those he is calling to believe the message by granting the gift of faith. They, they transfer their trust to Christ, and it is on the basis of that faith that God, the righteous judge, hands down a verdict that says, justified justified. Their sins are forgiven. They're declared righteous in his sight. They're reconciled to God. They're justified. And if I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Finally, those he justified, he also glorified. Now, each of the four previous verbs, four new, predestined, called, justified, are written in the aorist tense talked about that a few times recently. In the English, we think of it as past tense. But in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the aorist tense denotes something that, yes, took place at a definite time in the past, but it has continued result, this continued outcome. And Paul surprisingly puts the same, puts the verb glorified in that same Aorist tense, that is that we have been glorified. Those he justified, he also glorified. A biblical scholar named James Denny wrote that the tense in the last word is amazing. It's the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. He glorified us. Feel glorified? Did your husband or wife glorify you this morning? Probably not. Bible says that we who have been justified by faith in Christ have been glorified and will yet be glorified in heaven when we see Jesus face to face. How are we to make sense of this for our present experience? The reality is that we're talking about things our minds cannot and will not comprehend this side of heaven. We, it's just too much. But Paul gives us some insight in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and now listen, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's the, the now and the not yet of our glorification. Positionally, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Experientially, we're in the dumps, right? Experientially, we are still waiting for the day when our position in Christ becomes our reality. 
But like Edmund and Lucy and the rest, we are all kings and queens, princes and princesses in Narnia. Just waiting to be revealed. See, these five amazing affirmations then form five essential links in an unbreakable chain. They're too much for our minds to absorb. And if this is just kind of going like that to you this morning, I get it. But here's the amazing truth for you today if you're a Christian. You have experienced and responded to God's call through the gospel. And you are enjoying justification because you have put your faith in the message of the gospel. And you're able to look back down the chain and know that an eternity past, before creation, before the foundations of the world, God foreknew you, foreloved you, predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And you look up the chain and you know that in eternity yet to come, the unimaginable glory of God's presence awaits you. If you have not yet trusted in Christ this morning, my prayer for you is that you'll hear and respond to the call of God to do that. That God will grant you the gift of faith that leads to life. Here's the basic outline. God created you for a relationship with himself. But apart from Christ, you are separated from God by your sin. Because God loves you, with an everlasting love, and because he doesn't want you to stay in that condition of separation from him, he sent his son Jesus to offer himself as the sacrifice that would make final payment in full for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And when you transfer your trust from your own morality, your own righteousness, your own religiosity, your own good works, your own intentions to what Christ accomplished once and for all at the cross for you. The promise of God is that he will forgive all of your sin. He will declare you righteous. He will reconcile you to himself. He will adopt you as his very own son or daughter. And he will give you the gift of eternal life. You can respond to God's call this morning by simple faith. John wrote in his gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And that's our declaration. That's our message as a church. That's the message this morning. We look at those five Verbs. It's like looking inside of a computer. Anybody understand what's going on in there? I don't. But you turn it on, right? You push the button. And here's the simple truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the message. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. 
And Lord, I'm reminded that if I understood all of this, I would be you. (laughs) And I know that I'm not you, but I thank you for the gift of salvation, for sins forgiven, the hope of eternal life, to know that my eternity is secure. And Father, I pray that you just uh, impress these things on us. I pray this morning for those who know you, that you would enable them by your spirit to walk into the fullness of all that this means. And for those who do not know you this morning, who are hearing this message, I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that you would grant them the gift of faith in Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.